Fixed Plasm, episode 75, 1984 by George Orwell. A few words before we begin. This is a, a milestone of sorts, so it's episode 75, because I only started counting episode numbers at episode 51, so I missed the chance to celebrate the half century. What does a podcaster do at these milestones? Often, I, I suppose it's special guests, or a special subject, or a retrospective. Um, I don't really feel I can do any of those. But for a moment, before we start to get into it, uh, I wanted to talk about how this podcast started out. I floated the idea of an RPG podcast around some friends. Um, that would be Becky and Josh from Black Armada, um, plus Liz and a few other people. Um, but we'd never really had a shtick at the time we were talking about it. So the high concept came at the end of a holiday we had in Hastings uh, in 2016. So this was... Special because our son was three months old and I'd been on parental leave for all of that time. I was about to go back to work. So we were in this weird non-work routine that was very family focused. And at the end of the three month period of bliss, uh, and, and it really was amazing, um, we were going to have a little seaside holiday. Then I go back to work. So on the day we left, that was the day after the EU referendum. And... To be honest, it didn't go the way we voted. I'll be open about that. Um, the reason I'd voted Remain was my background is science, and also I've worked in a lot of different countries. So that's where my head is at. It's better to be in the EU. I don't want to get too far into that. Um, I think there is reasonable debate to be had on either side. And one of the tragedies of modern politics is we are lacking reasonable debate. And quite frankly, we're failing to see each other as human. But anyway... That morning, when we headed off to Hastings, it was a bit weird. 52% of the country had voted to leave. That's not the problem. The problem was, and has continued to be, that no one's having an adult conversation about the benefits, the ideological benefits of leaving the EU or staying in the EU, whatever. Uh, and instead, the country was split right down the middle. Now, the really awful thing about that is politicians and the media wanted to keep it that way. They want that division. So we had a lovely time in Hastings. We ate some great fish, uh, went to some vineyards. And, you know, there's some really fantastic English sparkling wine that you can get down that part of the country. Really recommend it. Um, and then on the way back home, I had the idea for Victorplasm. And then we started making episodes later in the summer. And that was that. So thinking retrospectively, this podcast does kind of have political origins, although Mostly I just want to talk about books and games. I don't want to be political. I want to talk about a leisure activity and talking about other worlds. So one other thing I want to say before I get into doing this episode, um, I've actually been a bit nervous about doing the episode and it's got worse as things in this year have gotten worse. And at the point I started thinking about doing this episode, what really made me angry was the blatant untruths which were being told by both UK and US governments. And I wanted to address those because this is the fundamental tool of a dystopian regime to lie to the population, to convince them that what they are seeing is not actually the truth. And at the same time, perversely, part of me was worried about jumping on a bandwagon. And that's a weird thing to worry about, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like I'm terribly insecure and indecisive. Anyway, things got worse, didn't they? Um, with the killing of George Floyd and the mass protests in the middle of a pandemic, 
and the subsequent media coverage where the press is massively distorting the message, and I'll talk about that in good time, I got more angry and kind of more reticent at the same time. That's really daft, isn't it? But that's where my head was at. But anyway, if you're listening around summer 2020, this episode will be a bit more political than usual. If it's not 2020, if it's sometime in the future, who knows what you're going to think. But hopefully I'll give a little bit of context so you can see where this is coming from. But at the same time, I'm talking about a book written at a set point in time, which we can analyse critically today. So I'm going to stick to the usual formula. There's going to be a synopsis, then themes, and after that, additional media. And honestly, I'm not sure how gameable this content is going to be at the end of everything. But, you know, bear with me, okay? Here we go. George Orwell's 1984 is the dystopian novel. And it's actually fairly light on plot. And the characters are, in my view, quite passive. But the main purpose of the novel, like a lot of Orwell's fiction, is a vehicle for a political point. And in this case, the evils of collectivism. Everything that the party does in 1984 to the citizens of Oceania is in pursuit of its collectivist aims, i.e. the suppression of individual in favour of the group identity. So, of our characters we have Winston Smith, that's our point of view character, a member of the outer party, or the middle classes, and he's tasked with basically retconning newspaper reports and other media to suit the party's historical narrative and their and their line on events that have transpired in the past. Julia is his lover, she's a member of the Outer Party, and she works in the fiction department, which is a, uh, a department where fiction is churned out by formula and rote by machines that construct a, a narrative and a plot according to certain formulae. And then the other main character we want to talk about is O'Brien, who's an inner party member and a revolutionary disciple of Emmanuel Goldstein. And Winston first makes eye contact with uh, O'Brien during the two minutes hate. Much later, he and Julia meet up with O'Brien and conspire uh, the overthrow of the party of Oceana. There are a few other minor characters. Um, there are other party members. There are people living nearby to Winston. Um, there are people that Winston observes. There are members of the Thought Police. There are people who vanish. And there are reasons given for all of their different behaviours. But these are the three main characters we need to bear in mind. So onto the setting. Oceana is one of three superpowers in the world. And the other being Eurasia and East Asia. And Oceania is always at war with one and at peace with the other. And society consists of the proles, uh, the outer party, of which Smith is a member, and the inner party, uh, with Big Brother right at the top. The party is the state and the government, and it directs all facets of life. And this is a world of constant surveillance through telescreens and hidden microphones, of personal privations, of thought crimes, and a certain paranoia that you're always being observed. Um, the ritual of the two-minute hate as a world where, as I mentioned before, novels are generated mechanically by computer algorithm. And there's this constant threat and a constant fear of being vaporized. That's the, the process by which a person is not only killed, but erased from history. And in fact, all of history is 
constantly being revised. So there are claims that the party invented things like aeroplanes and things that it could not possibly have invented. And it's even reinventing language via Newspeak, which is a form of simplified language that eradicates variant words or other words it deems redundant, like um, bad being replaced by ungood. And at the time of the novel, this system of speaking is being introduced right there with the expectation that it will be the only way of speaking in the generations in the future. So let's talk about the plot. The, the hook is Winston Smith is our point of view character, and the novel opens with a walk through the horrors and drudgery of his life, from the, uh, the dour housing that always smells of cabbage to the robotic ritual of the two-minute hate. Um... And Winston has already started to question the world. He's, he's, he's even bought a contraband writing book, which he keeps his thoughts in, uh, and which he fully expects that someday he will be vaporised for, for, just for keeping this artefact of the past in which he, he writes in. Um, he writes with, a, I think, a fountain pen, and, and there's um, an ink pencil as the standard way that people write. And Winston works in the outer party, and he works long hours altering historical documents to erase or change past events according to the party's required narrative. So, for example, if someone's been vaporised, he might be responsible for removing all trace of their existence in all historical records and dropping them down a memory hole. A memory hole is a physical thing which will vaporise any, any hard evidence. So this routine of his life, which is this kind of um, slow spiral in which he realises more and more the horrors of the world and comes to question the reality of everything this routine is interrupted by him meeting julia their romance has to be conducted in secret and they they're constantly mindful of what might be seen or overheard by party surveillance so they employ a number of counter surveillance techniques to avoid detection and as it is they manage to conduct themselves like this for several months um, they've got this feeling that it can't last. So there's, there's like this, this fatalism around their affair. But at the time, it's very clear that they're living life to the fullest they can. Um, one of the things that uh, that's a feature of this world is the um, synthetic gin, synthetic coffee. Uh, and the idea that uh, the, the, the victory gin, the victory coffee and victory tea that's supplied is somehow substandard and counterfeit. And so having real coffee and other goods available on the black market is a, is a bit of a revelation and so they indulge themselves in all the things that are illicit whilst they conduct their affair. And at this point, O'Brien comes into the narrative. So he's this inner party member. He's privileged. And earlier in the book, Winston and O'Brien make eye contact and through this, a kind of complicity is established. Even though O'Brien doesn't really feature much in the narrative from then on it's it's all in winston's head but he imagines that o'brien sees the things that are wrong with the world that he sees winston he has this unconscious feeling that o'brien is seeking to conspire with him even though they exchange no words so when they finally make contact their conversation is a kind of code um o'brien remarks on winston's turn of phrase and his command of newspeak which are actually two contradictory things. Of course, you know, you have an elaborate turn of phrase, 
but you also have a good command of newspeak. You have an appreciation about how the, the party is narrowing down and limiting vocabulary. And yet, if you speak in a more elaborate way, then you're consciously going against that. So when they finally make contact, their conversation is a kind of code. So they make contact and they set up a clandestine meeting. And um, from there, both Winston and Julia are indoctrinated into the revolutionary faction led by Emmanuel Goldstein, opposing the party fully in the knowledge that it will likely result in their uh, torture, death and erasure from all of history. There's a, there's an elaborate arrangement involving a, a duplicate briefcase by which O'Brien passes a, um, a, a book to Winston, a, a very uh, a seditious book called The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism, written by Emmanuel Goldstein. So this is, uh, this is the core treatise of the revolutionary movement. Towards the end of the second act, you know, we, we get big chunks of this text verbatim as uh, Winston reads it in bed with Julia and it's a truth that you know we the reader would recognize because it describes the bounds of Oceania and the other superpowers according to our world geography um, just just for record Oceania is the Americas but also includes the British Isles and then um, uh, the uh, Eurasia is most of Europe up to the Middle East and then um, and then East Asia is most of the Asian continent and the British Isles is referred to as Landing Strip 1, which is kind of a, a very cynical way to, to look at how uh, the, the British Isles has become this um, weak offshoot of Oceania itself. And this section is really the centrepiece of the novel. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's an imagined future from which the novel grows outwards, even though it, it's, it appears about sort of you know, 60% away through the novel. And... The other thing that's interesting here is Winston's reading is not so much a veil being lifted from his eyes as a confirmation of his own suspicions and an affirmation that he hasn't gone completely mad. And the chapter he reads not only describes the three collectivist nations with their own versions of what is effectively the same thing, a sort of authoritarian regime. Um, Oceana has Ingsoc, uh, English Socialism, and East Asia has death worship. It's called death worship, and it's it's the idea is it's death of the individual uh, in favour of the collective. And then uh, Eurasia is a neo-Bolshevism. Uh, so all of these are the same. Uh, they're all political totalitarian theories. It also describes the tools that uh, they employ, or certainly Oceania employs, uh, in terms of newspeak. Um, so Newspeak has a number of very specific words which have now made made their way into our common language to describe exactly the aptitudes that they appear here. Um, the principle of these is doublethink, you know, the, the ability to hold two contradictory ideas or principles at once. Um, and that is, is sort of fundamental. More interestingly uh, is the notion of black-white. That, that's all one word, black-white. And the meaning of this changes depending on who is exercising the thought. So if an anti-party member is you know, exercising the, the concept of black-white, it's their ability to say that a thing is the opposite of what it is. You know, black is white. And they, they say that with total belief and conviction. But if you're higher up in the inner party, 
The concept of black-white is the ability to insist that a policy or belief held by the party is the opposite to what it appears. So it implies a certain amount of complicity and doublethink. And there is this uh, this um, line early on, which is provided that the, that the party the party told you to ignore the elephants of your eyes and ears. It was their final and most essential command. And this is an expression of the inner party making that demand of the rest of the population. Unfortunately, uh, Winston's epiphany, sort of reading all this stuff and saying, oh, I'm not mad at all and I understand how the world works now, is it's immediately followed by his downfall. He is a thought criminal. He's been observed all this time. And right at the point where, you know, he closes the book on that chapter, the archetypal jackbooted fascist thugs invade Winston and Julia's tryst, their love nest, um, and he's brought face to face with authority. And in the third act, uh, it's Winston's incarceration and trial, uh, where he's subjected to the most inhumane and brutal conditions and punishments as his masters break him down and force him to not only comply, but believe the untruths that he confesses to. And his final act of submission is declaring his love for Brig Brother. And this conclusion is inevitable. But that's not really the point of this third act. This chapter is about explaining the motivations of the organisation via the, the dialogue between Winston and his captors. And direct comparisons are made to both Stalinist and Nazi regimes, including the reasons why these regimes have failed and the party's goal uh, to not fail where these have in the past. The other thing we see in the third act are the methods that the party uses to bring Winston to heel. Um, truly you know, horrible descriptions of torture. Um, but the main point here is the mental contortions that Winston himself makes to try to comply with their demands and their interrogation, to try to agree with them that black is white, uh, that he was wrong. Um, so a lot of the time his his uh, torture is all about um, them insisting that he confesses that he believes what he that he believes complete untruths that he thinks that he knows to be untrue but not so much that he states the, his belief but he actually believes that is how they break him uh, and the remarkable thing is that the parts of himself that they force him to sacrifice So I want to talk about constructing a dystopian society for games um, or for you know, academic analysis, maybe to draw comparisons with current affairs. There's two distinct concepts that we need to talk about. And the first one is how the dystopian comes to be. That includes the circumstances and also the motivations behind the change. And the second concept are the tools that the establishment uses to keep control. So... Uh, how does it come about then? Well, first, you can't have a dystopia without disparity in class distinction. Oceana's organisation of Big Brother and the inner party controlling the outer party and the proles is the upper, middle, lower class structure. We don't actually know if the people at the top of this structure are descended from the ruling elites of the society that came before Oceana. That was a capitalist society that collapsed. It seems likely 
given there's a focus on absolute control and power and a, a succession of three-year plans. But anyway, you, you could have a dystopian society that's been designed from the outset by elites based on Emmanuel Goldstein's manifesto. Or you could have a society which was founded on other principles with the best of intentions. And both of these are compatible with Goldstein's basic model in the chapter one of the theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism, which is this. The elites have power and want to hang on to it. The middle classes want to replace the elites, which they do by enlisting the support of the lower classes, promising what, what they want. And the lower classes want to abolish the class structure altogether and make everyone equal. So everything comes down to power and control. Some of the tools employed by the regime are therefore to control the lower classes and others to control the middle classes. And as far as motivation goes, in 1984 the dystopia is entirely by design. So, here's a quote. After the revolutionary period of the 50s and 60s, society regrouped itself, as always, into high, middle and low. But the new high group, unlike all its forerunners, did not act upon instinct, but knew what was needed to safeguard its position. It had long been realised that the only secure basis for oligarchy is collectivism. Wealth and privilege are most easily defended when they are possessed jointly. The so-called abolition of private property, which took place in the middle years of the century, meant, in effect, the concentration of property in far fewer hands than before, but with this difference that the new owners were a group instead of a mass of individuals. So, collectivism isn't a motivation, it's a tool. And it's a tool that's applied by all three of the superstates in this world. And the next question, so how, how did things end up like this? And in 1984, there's a, a revolutionary period in which a ruling class emerges that has the will and political now to hold on to power. They've capitalised on a period of unrest and uncertainty to further their political agenda. I should think of a couple of other examples of this. Uh, in the Purge franchise, the new founding fathers establish a totalitarian state following economic collapse in the US and social unrest. Uh, then in Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, there's a general air of social collapse, which is brought on by inequality and climate change. But it's also interesting that there's the balkanization of the United States where individual states now war for resources. And I think we can compare this with the future of Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Um, in fact, it's interesting that balkanization of the USA actually turns up as a Google search term. Um, another example, Veronica Roth's Divergent series. And the background is an apocalypse, and, and I'll talk about the relationship between dystopia and apocalypse later. But for now, this is an example where a catastrophic event has forced a sudden societal change on people. And often the regimes in this genre are autocratic. And, you know, a, a suspension of certain freedoms is posited as necessary for group survival. And there is uh, a tradition of apocalyptic and dystopian YA fiction. Um, for example, The Hunger Games, H.M. Uh, Hoover's Children of Morrow, amongst others. Um, and another example, which is adult fiction, is the Silo Trilogy by Hugh Howey. Uh, that's Wool, Shift and Dust. Uh, and that's a kind of manufactured apocalypse of sorts, which was designed to force humanity into living underground. 
So I'll talk about apocalyptic fiction later, but for now, the common template is that you have an elite faction invested in preserving the current status quo, the people in society remain unequal. Unequal in terms of their opportunities, and also unequal in how they're informed. Now let's talk about the tools in which this is achieved. The first tool is language, and I've seen several definitions of the term Orwellian. Um, one of them suggests that it's very specifically about the language. It's not the only definition. And there's um, uh, this one from Wikipedia says that it's an adjective describing a situation, idea, or societal condition uh, that uh, George Orwell identified as being destructive to the welfare of a free and open society, um, controlled by propaganda, surveillance, disinformation, denial of truth, and so on. Um, but there are some specific definitions of Orwellian control which is entirely around language. And this is what distinguishes 1984 from other dystopian fiction, I think. Um, maybe that's a bit simplistic, but language is absolutely fundamental to the control exerted by the regime. It's one of the things I find the most powerful. So this concept of newspeak is to reduce the number of available words and the structure of language available to the population. And so with this deliberate simplification of language, you get a simplification of thought. Let's say if you eradicate the word for a constitution, you eradicate the idea of a constitution. And there, thereby you take away the ability of the lower classes to entertain notions of equality. And the interesting thing about 1984 is that the society is right at the start of introducing these ideas. They haven't been fully implemented yet. If they had been fully implemented, you can have a protagonist like Winston Smith, who indulges in fairly sophisticated thought. Um, still, there is the concept of thought crime and the thought police. There's another example I, I want to pick on, um, which is the language used by an autocratic state in Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. So, the Acheans of Gene Wolfe's Earth Cycle are invaders from the authoritarian regime in the Northern Hemisphere. And this society is governed by the Group of 17, which I believe is an allusion to the Soviet Politburo. And from the Group of 17 comes the authorised texts which form the basis for a sharing correct thought. Their speech patterns are wholly drawn from the quotations of the authorised text. And in the fourth book, Severian encounters the character named Loyal to the Group of 17. So, a bit like seven of nine. Um, and... Uh, Here's an example of his speech patterns when he talks about relationships. I'll read this quote. The Ashane recited, United men and women are stronger, but a brave woman desires children and not husbands. He means that he would like to marry me, but he doesn't think his attentions would be acceptable. He's wrong. Folia looked from Melito to Halvard, and her smile had become a grin. Are you two really so frightened of him in a storytelling contest? So authorised texts and correct thought are methods used by the regime to completely suppress individual thought and personality in favour of groupthink. It's a lot like Orwell's Newspeak. And in 1984 we're seeing an introduction of Newspeak, but what if the language had been suppressed over centuries as it is in a share, and take away the ability to free expression, and you take away the ability to dissent, plain and simple. But at the same time it's clear that this character, loyal to the group of 17, is independent and creative enough to express desire and fear of rejection. 
So my thinking is that even if generations had been robbed of free expression, would dissenters still find a way of using authorised text to communicate and organise? How could you get around this conditioning? Maybe you use um, tone, like saying something sarcastically to imply the opposite meaning to the actual words. And this makes me wonder how successful it would be to suppress language like this in the long term. Right, on to our second tool, which is mass and constant surveillance of the population. And this has two effects. The first one is obviously to weed out dissenters. Um, and 1984 notes that one of the reasons previous collectivist autocracies had failed was the lack of tools to monitor the population everywhere 24-7. I kind of think we're desensitised today to the idea of mass surveillance. A lot of uh, spy fiction like Spooks or The Born Identity features you know, massive surveillance engines which can churn through video footage and weed out individuals. Um, and the idea of a globalised system which knows everything about us and communicates through augmented reality is fairly commonplace as well. So um, the film adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Minority Report features this in terms of targeted advertising. Um, then there's also the Ubiquity collection edited by Todd Foley. Uh, and all of these extrapolate fears of what is being done with our data. Minority Report in particular is worth mentioning because it's all about pre-crime. So the surveillance is via precognition. And the film, there's another film called Deja Vu, and that uses an Einstein-Rosen bridge to allow remote viewing into the future. And both of these become plausible routes to policing thoughts and actions of people before they become fully formed. In 1984, some of the indicators of thought crime are patterns of speech and language. So, you know, it still comes back to language. So that's the, that's the actual practical use of surveillance, but there's a second use, uh, and that is to make the population actively afraid. So Winston is constantly in fear of being overheard and the idea that any time someone could come into your private place and find your personal belongings and draw conclusions based on what you write is this invasion of privacy which is incredibly powerful uh, I think you need this psychological element because there's no way the entire population can be surveilled effectively all the time and certainly the proles are too big a body to police unlike the outer party um, so what the inner party do, what the inner party do for the proles is keep a, uh, keep an eye out for any kind of intelligence that might lead to a revolution in the proletariat, and then just rub out the individual concerned, uh, you know, cut it off before it can grow. So I reread the J.G. Ballard story, uh, the Watchtowers, in which these observation bubbles operated by some unknown force hang suspended from the sky watching over this um, middle-class suburb somewhere I'm not sure exactly where I quote Renthal usually tried to ignore the watchtowers resenting even the smallest concession to the fact of their existence but at the bottom of the street where he was hidden in the shadow thrown by one of the houses he stopped and craned his head up at the nearest tower a hundred feet away from him it hung over the public library its tip poised no more than 20 feet above the roof the glass-enclosed cabin in the lowest tier appeared to be full of observers, opening and shutting the windows and shifting about what Rental assumed were huge pieces of optical equipment, 
He looked around at the further towers, suspended from the sky at three hundred foot intervals in every direction, noticing an occasional flash of light as a window turned and caught the sun. Uh, it's important to note that the protagonist, Renthal, contrasts with the other characters in that he's much less concerned about the constant surveillance, but everyone else is extremely wary of being overheard. And it presents the paranoia of being surveyed as a very middle-class concern. And there's even a, a local council. I'm not sure what it's a council of, but um, as a council who seem to regulate life in this suburb, and it's rumoured that they are in touch with whatever forces behind the watchtowers. So you've, you've got an artificial hierarchy created within the middle class that's being used to police its own citizens. But the, the effect is the same. This fear of surveillance is very much a concern of the middle classes, and it's the tool of fear that's being used on this particular population. The proletariat might not care, but the middle classes are afraid of their masters. And of course, in 1984, you also have the threat of informants. Even children who've been indoctrinated into the youth movements will inform on their own parents. And it's this, this constant threat that anyone might be watching, regardless of whether they actually are watching. All right, next. Hand in hand with surveillance goes propaganda and media. And media can include figureheads, which could be both positive, like Big Brother, or negative, like Emmanuel Goldstein. Um, societies, uh, like the aforementioned youth movements. Uh, broadcasts, posters, uh, uh, celebrations, festivals, marches, that sort of thing. Um, the famous quote we have in 1984 is, The party told you to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final and most essential command. We've had quite that quoted quite a bit recently because of all the, the, the really awful truth-twisting we've seen in the British media. You must have noticed that. But, but of course, you don't have to be a totalitarian state to make use of propaganda. Uh, and in the capitalist future, of cyberpunk media manipulation is commonplace. I love the Max Headroom series for this, partly for the projective future aesthetic that's like very 80s, you know, absolutely enormous computers and, and cameras. Um, but mostly because it's about journalism. That's one of the reasons I, I also love uh, Transmetropolitan. But in 1984, the obvious bits of propaganda relate to the party, but also to branding, you know, like uh, there's Victory Cigarettes, Victory Coffee, Victory Gin, um, and also to the war, the perpetual war with Eurasia or East Asia, depending on what the party has decided where at war at. So then let's talk about rewriting history, because that is part of propaganda. The revisionist efforts, they're much more subtle than the overt propaganda. And these are efforts to erase history and erase people from history. And the need for this is once again laid out in Emmanuel Goldstein's treatise, quote, The mutability of the past is a central tenet of Ingsoc. Past events, it is argued, have no objective existence, but survive only in written records and in human memories. The past is whatever the records and the memories agree upon. And since the party is in full control of all records, and in equally full control of the minds of its members, it follows that the past is whatever the party chooses to make it. It also follows that though the past is alterable, it never has been altered in any specific instance. For when it has been recreated in whatever shape is needed at the moment, then this new version is the past and no different past can ever have existed. 
This, of course, leads to the need for DoubleThink and CrimeStop. Uh, so DoubleThink being the ability to hold contradictory views and CrimeStop the ability to just stop oneself from forming thoughts which are seditious just before you form them. And of all the elements of a dystopian setting, I kind of think this one is the most easily exploited for world and scenario building because it automatically infers a mystery and therefore an investigation. Had Winston been you know, a less passive revolutionary, he might have hoarded evidence rather than dropping it down the memory hole. But then that would have been a very different story. Still, lies about history are a staple of dystopian fiction, particularly when you're trying to stop the population from questioning what's beyond their borders. Cities are good for this. You know, I'm going to talk more about the Divergent series later. So let's talk about the last couple of tools. And the first one is Perpetual War, which relates to both propaganda and lies about history. And also it conveniently scapegoats an external agency for internal failings. Uh, crucially, in 1984, though, war is as much a device to consume resources. And the idea is that it's vitally important to continue to produce, but this production must also be destroyed. So you have to consume what you produce because it's vitally important not to have individual living standards improve because then you no longer have your compliant and industrious proletariat. And this quote links war to productivity. War, it will be seen, not only accomplishes the necessary destruction, but accomplishes it in a psychologically acceptable way. In principle, it would be quite simple to waste the surplus labour of the world by building temples and pyramids, by digging holes and filling them up again, or even by producing vast quantities of goods and then setting fire to them. But this would provide only the economic and not the emotional basis for a hierarchical society. What is concerned here is not the morale of the masses, whose attitude is unimportant so long as they are kept steady at work, but the morale of the party itself. Even the humblest party member is expected to be competent, industrious and even intelligent within narrow limits, but it is also necessary that he should be a credulous and ignorant fanatic, whose prevailing moods are fear, hatred, adulation and orgiastic triumph. It also notes that the engines of war represent a massive accretion of resources, um, but they're still consumables. They can be destroyed, and they are destroyed in war. So making war machines is a really efficient way of both perpetuating war, retarding economic growth, and scapegoating a foreign power. Brilliant. Okay, so those are the tools. For the last bit, I want to go beyond 1984 and talk about why people mix up dystopian and apocalyptic fiction. And I want to start with, you know, on a very serious note, um, with a tweet I'm going to read you. Um, it's from the 28th of May, and it came in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis uh, from a user called Tim Nelson, who writes this. The neighbourhood just north of the Minneapolis Police 3rd Precinct is still dystopian this morning. Ash drifting in the air, alarms sounding, hardly an intact window for blocks. Okay. And this is the response that you need to take notice of. Uh, it's from a user called Andrew Carr. Dystopia is not an image of property damage. Dystopia is a 10 minute video of four police officers slowly killing a man in front of witnesses and doing so without a trace of fear. 
if you only saw the dystopia when property caught fire, you're part of the problem. We can learn something from this, uh, apart from the fact that for some people in our, in our current society, it very much is a dystopian society where they are denied basic rights and freedoms. But from a fictional point of view, we treat dystopia like an aesthetic. And certainly with fiction like Divergent and The Hunger Games and all manner of spy thrillers and the like, with, you know, shadowy government and corporate agencies accountable to no one, we have this general idea about the implied hierarchy and, and what it means for the protagonists and their antagonists. Uh, one side stands out from the population and needs to be put down, and the other side has lots of resources and knows everything, and will put the population and usually the point of view characters in terribly cruel situations, which then they have to personally overcome. So we use it as a vehicle for personal growth and personal awareness, much less than societal change. In YA fiction, these characters are often not politically aware. Instead, they're being manipulated by adults who will form the different political factions. What, then, is the link with apocalyptic fiction? Well, as I said earlier, the regimes in post-apocalyptic fictions are often authoritarian, out of a need for survival. And I'd argue that they become properly dystopian when these two conditions are met, based on the example of 1984. Number one. The inhabitants have no sense of the true history of the settlement, and the settlement is big enough that they never need to test its borders. So, for example, uh, Chicago in the Divergent series is a an example of that setup. Number two, the authority in the settlement has intentionally chosen to hold on to power through some or all of the manipulations used in the examples above, uh, be that misinformation, propaganda, um, outright lying about history, lying about what's outside, uh, artificially creating hierarchies, artificially requiring industry, which is ultimately non-productive. Now, other features of a post-apocalyptic fiction that fit with the dystopian model include tribal identity. So, Divergent has this sort of this faction system, which is you a know, tribal system, and that is a kind of collectivism they are encouraged to give themselves over to a collectivist idea, one of five different factions. But that alone isn't enough to make it a dystopia. Um, and remember, these tribes are manufactured rather than being uh, what you might, have, might expect in an apocalyptic scenario where you have individual apocalypse survivors coming together, banding together and forming a group identity that way. I've seen some pretty wild claims about where some books fall on the spectrum of dystopian and apocalypse and the absolute worst example was someone who claimed that Cormac McCarthy's The Road is a dystopian novel and it was this this kind of thing that, that annoyed me so much that I wrote a brief essay on it which and it's quite short so I'm going to read it out slightly abridged I calls it dystopocalypse idea people mix up dystopian and post-apocalypse genres for two reasons reason one the precedent for many dystopias is a collapse or near collapse and significant loss and hierarchies are put in place to mitigate against a repeat event erroneously disingenuously or earnestly terrible concessions are forced on a population justified through fear of the past and the second reason we wish the protagonists to survive on their own terms in both cases and also both concern the struggle to be human in a dehumanising environment. 
So dystopia is about control, restriction of freedom, acceptance of hierarchy, acceptance of inequality, loopholes and technicalities, banal certainty of the future, the struggle to be human within a confining structure, and to escape society. Post-apocalypse is about loss of control, loss of shelter, horrible uncertainty of the future, and the struggle to form a society and be more human within it than the environment will allow you to be outside it. Dystopia can naturally follow a post-apocalyptic scenario where the fear of external threats is used as justification for the awful things that the survivors must endure and things that become commonplace. Perhaps there is a brief period of optimism when society is reformed, positive vision is needed to survive and the dystopia can only be realised after the walls of utopia have been rebuilt. The switch happens once the citizens are no longer able to see clear into the abyss of the violent outside. Once they have erected walls and turned their attention inwards, only listening to their leaders reminding them how much worse it is out there and not bothering to check for themselves. Now some might ask why I make a fuss. I think it's helpful to keep in mind for games and fiction because you need to know in which direction your protagonists are running. So my handy rule of thumb is, if they're running into the settlement, it's post-apocalypse. If they're running out of the settlement, it's dystopia. Job done. Now, rereading that, I still stand by it after nearly five years, but fiction does exist to cross genres rather than paint inside lines. So I think there's a big discussion to be had there. Now, that's it for this episode, but it's not the end of the conversation because in the next episode, I'm going to discuss a counterpoint to 1984 in Cory Doctorow's Little Brother, in which I will talk about activism, counter-surveillance, fighting back, and wasps. Until then, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe, however you care to do that. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Thanks for listening.